Professor Richard Primus. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's nice to see you. How are you? It's good to see you too. So you told me that I didn't need to call you Professor. Yeah, (laughs) that's fine. Yeah, it's been 20 years, you know. Yeah, I always have a hard time with that. Like, I have teachers from my elementary or middle school days, and I, I still run into them sometimes, because some of them are actually my kids' teachers now. Sure. And the most amazing thing is that they are still young. Uh-huh. And after all these years, and I still have to call them, you know, Mr. and Mrs. or whatever, whatever it might be out of respect, because I'm just, I'm just used to seeing them as an authority figure. And it always amazes me to see my teachers after many years and see that they are still so young. Like you are still a young man <laughs> after all this time. I, 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 I appreciate that. I'd like to think I'm having a second youth. Um, uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I think the, the impulse to continue calling someone by the title that you first knew them by is, I think, in a lot of ways, a good one. Um, like, respect is a good way to engage with people. And titles often show respect. And, um, and people like being treated with respect. And also it establishes the relationship, right? That is like the reason that you, you know, have in the past called me professor is because we have a relationship, right? And that's the relationship that we entered into in the same way that I, I mean, I called you by a title also, right? I called you Mr. Amash because that's what I call first year students, right? Yeah. And I do that as a way of showing respect and establishing a certain kind of relationship. And I, I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who have aversions uh, to titles um, and last names and so forth because they think, and sometimes with justice, that it smacks too much of artificial hierarchies and so forth. And so we should move past it as fast as we can. But sometimes they're useful. And sometimes they actually, rather than creating distance between people, they keep the relationship live and uh, established. So I, I think it speaks well for you that it's been your impulse to continue to do that. But yeah, but I, but, but as I've said to you, you know, you should call me Richard. And, um, uh, I mean, and I, I, I could call you Congressman, but I could also just call you Justin. Yeah. And I'm okay with any of that. So if you want to call me Justin, that's fine. Or Mr. Amash or, or whatever you'd like. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. I, I like to be respectful and it is hard for me to break the habit. So I might try to call you Richard from time to time, but if I, Call you professor. I hope you'll indulge me and, I won't and mind just accept it. I won't mind at all. And in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, when, I, when I teach a big class, and all the introductory classes are big classes for this purpose, I, I go by Professor Primus. If I teach a upper class seminar, it's just your 10 upper year class students and me around a table. I say at the beginning of the semester, um, like in, in this room... You know, my name is Richard. It's fine. You can call me Richard. It's a small group and so on and so forth. And nobody ever does. You know, the the students continue to call me Professor Primus. And I don't blame them for that. It's what they're comfortable with. So I want to signal what's signaled by giving them permission. And then if they don't want to accept that permission, that's okay. I get it. Yeah. What was it like being a young professor? Because when I had you as a professor, I didn't 
realize how young you were, actually. And again, this goes back to being a kid. I think when we're kids in elementary school, we don't realize that a lot of our teachers are about 20 years old. That is very common. Um, and similarly, when I'm in law school, I guess I don't imagine that my professor is in his early 30s. Yeah. So what was that like? Yeah. So I, I think there are a couple of sides to this, right? The first is, so I, I was in my early 30s. I think I, I was 33 years old when your class came through. Mm-hmm. I was in my second year of teaching. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think... And, and, and uh, I, I was single, didn't have any kids, um, and I lived in the world, you know, as a young single man in his 30s. It, I didn't think of myself as all that young, although I you know, recognized looking around me that the rest of the faculty were older, right? Um, it, it meant that everything was fresh in teaching for me. You know, like I was still figuring it out. Um, I was trying to go about figuring it out in a way that didn't seem to the students like I was still trying to figure it out because the students are entitled to have someone teaching the class who has figured it out well enough to be <laughs> teaching the class, right? And there's a trick, I think, in lots of things in life to conduct yourself having put in the effort to figure it out as well as you possibly can while remaining self-aware that you're still figuring it out, right? Yeah. So I, 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 think, I think there was a lot of that. And a, a fair amount of the fun and the learning for me in those years came from the fact that I was doing so many things for the first time or, or, or just the second time. Um, and, you know, the age gap between me and my students then wasn't all that great, you know, like six to eight years in a bunch of respects. But... I think there's also this flip side of it, which um, which is important, I think, for the teacher to remember. Um, the 20-year-old teaching elementary school or the 24-year-old teaching elementary school, like, to an old man like me now, you know, I'm in my early 50s, like, that person's just, that that's a baby, right? That person's unimaginably young. But to the students who are eight or nine years old, that person is unimaginably old, right? There's just a mm-hmm. ton of life experience that separates that 20-year-old from that nine-year-old, even though when they're 61 and 50, you know, they'll be peers. And in the same respect, I think it was important for me as a young professor n- not to forget that the six or eight years between me and my students mattered right? Like not to think that they were at the same point on the developmental line as I was, or that I could fully inhabit their perspective anymore. Because even though it was just six or eight years at that time in life, it matters. I think those are you know, some of my first associations about you know, what it was like to be 33 and starting out. I, I also remember this. Um, the first year I taught, I, I wore a suit and tie to teach every day. Um, I wore a suit and tie to teach every day, I think for two reasons. The first was I had just come from law practice, so I had suits in my closet, right? That's what I had to wear to work. And the second was I was 32, and there had to be some way for the people in the room to distinguish between the students and the professor, right? Like, how do you know? Because, like, the professor's the guy in the suit. And so I taught in the suit and tie, and one day, maybe five or six weeks into the semester, I was walking down the hall, you know, casebook under my arm, about to go teach, 
And I walked past the office of an older colleague of mine, still on the faculty, a lovely, lovely man named Richard Friedman, who's one of the nicest mm-hmm. people you've ever met. And I passed his office, you know, in my suit, like black wingtip shoes, like clacking on the floor of the hallway as I went by. And when I was about 15 feet past his office, he was out of his office in the hall, standing out there, shouting behind me. And he shouted, a real law professor can command the respect of the classroom in shorts, (laughs) right? And I thought, okay, that's funny, right? And it's like, it's funny that you like, you know, are impelled to jump out into the classroom and, and tell me that. And I get what you're saying, right? Like, I can't rely on the suit because it, it, it's not, it's not, you know, that the professor has so much power that he doesn't need the suit, right? I think what Rich was really trying to say was, it's not the suit that'll make you a good teacher. You got to be a good enough teacher that you can do it in your shorts. And if you can, you'll be fine. Now, I, I didn't, I didn't start wearing shorts, you know, I, yeah. I, I, um, I dropped the suit and went to things like coat and tie and so forth. But I remember that very keenly about being a young professor also. And I try to remember it when I see new young professors coming in after me to remember um, it takes a little while to be secure in the role. And as an older colleague, I have to be gentle, you know, with their process of becoming secure in the role. Yeah, absolutely. And as a young congressman, it was very much the same way, where early on, I did feel more compelled to wear things like suits to distinguish myself, to show, hey, I did it. I'm a congressman. This is what a congressman does. We wear suits and we talk professionally to people. But over time, you do gain enough of a reputation, enough confidence and security that then you can go out. And I did more frequently than go out in polos and then eventually just wearing jeans. And how long, how long did was, that take you? It took me a little while, but um, you know, a few years, I would say, before I felt really comfortable doing a town hall meeting in a more um, casual attire, I guess. But uh-huh. but eventually, they're not there to see your suit. You realize, you know, they're there to communicate with you, and you don't need the suit to. Um, to command the room and to be able to answer their questions and to relate to them as a congressman. I, 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 I'm sure that's right. And, 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 here's, and here's, of course, the other side of it, right, which ties back in a way to what we were talking about, about the use of titles, right? Um, I didn't feel anymore after a while that I had to wear the suit and tie every day to teach, but I also thought I owe the students the communication, right, signaled in whatever ways I can that I take this seriously, mm-hmm. right? And that this is a space in which we are responsible to take what we are doing seriously as responsible adults, right? Like you guys, the students, like you're going to have people's liberties and fortunes in your hands as lawyers. Um, and one of the ways that I've tried to, I mean, th- this is not to speak ill of colleagues of mine who've made different choices and communicate these messages in different ways, right? But for me, it's meant... Um, I still, like, I still wear khakis and a sport coat, you know, to teach, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't show up in funny t-shirts. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, like, I save that, I save that for home because I want, um, not that there's no place for humor in the classroom. There's lots of place for it, but because I want the students to have the sense, this is an adult professional space, 
right? This is a space where we have to be responsible people and we have to conduct ourselves in ways that signal to ourselves that we have to behave like responsible people who other people are counting on. Yeah. And I have the same sense about the house floor. For example, there are rules about how you dress on the house floor. And I think those rules are appropriate. There are a lot of people who disagree with me, who's, who say, no, we should be more casual. Um, but I've always believed we should get dressed up. We should go there feeling like we are doing something important because we are legislating. And uh-huh. I don't think it's the kind of place we want to show up in shorts and sandals uh-huh. and what are, T-shirts. What, what are the rules? You have to wear – if you're a man, you have to wear uh, a, a suit and a tie. You've got to wear mm-hmm. a jacket and a tie. Uh-huh. Um, and there were people like John Boehner who would very strictly enforce it and would remind you all the time. But over time, I think it's gotten a little more casual. Men still do have to wear a jacket and tie. But I, I do worry that over time the rules will get more lax, especially now that we're um, in this world of proxy voting, which I was not going on while I was there. Um, mm-hmm. Well uh, – I don't think they had started it um, – maybe they started it toward the end of my time being there. I never proxy voted, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't really remember. But mm-hmm. I do worry that the whole institution becomes a little more casual. I, so I think the analog in my line of work is about Zoom teaching in the pandemic and how that changed the way people dressed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, cause lots of examples, for example, of professors who – you know, dressed up a little bit the way they would dress to teach from the waist up where the camera could see them, you know, but wore shorts or sweats or whatever from the waist down. I never did that. Like I, like I, I was dressed exactly like I would dress for, um, for teaching in person when, even if I was sitting at home, you know, teaching on zoom, right. Um, down to my shoes because I was the audience for the signal. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. like it's a way to remind myself of what role I'm responsible to execute here and how I'm supposed to do it. Now, was it often the case that 90 seconds after the class wrapped up, you know, like the, the, the nice shoes were off and I changed into sweatpants? Sure. Right. But not while I was teaching. Yeah. When, when you were a professor in my day, you had a reputation for being a tough professor. Do you think that was fair? Were you, did you think of yourself as a tough professor? Were you a tough professor? Um, I just remember a lot of other students saying that you were an intimidating person. I, I certainly felt a little bit intimidated in your class. Um, not because you were mean in any way, but you certainly seemed serious about the job. And, um, I think that people did feel a little bit intimidated. Do you do you think that that came off? And do you think you've changed over time, or do you still have a reputation like that? Um, and by the way, it's, for everyone listening, you've won the the award as the outstanding professor four times for the school. So people do like you, and you were certainly, um, if not my favorite professor that I've ever had, one of my favorite professors um, through all of my years of schooling. So. I want to add that because it's important people know that I was intimidated by you, but, but I enjoyed the class. Well, 
I mean, the last thing you said is very kind of you. Let me let, let me think about this a little bit. I, I have heard over the years that people uh, think of me as a tough professor or as intimidating. Um, my kids both say that they guess that my students think of me as intimidating and then they laugh at the thought that um, people would find me intimidating, right? Because I'm their dad and it's different. Um, let's distinguish between a couple of different things we might mean about when we, when we say that a professor is tough or intimidating and like try to sort through it a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that people might sometimes mean, but which I don't think they meant in this case, um, was that a, a, a tough professor is one who grades more stingily or demandingly than other professors. So that's not it because we have a curve, right? It's mandatory. Mm -hmm. It's mathematical. You know, like the distribution of grades is the same in my intro class as it is in any other intro class, right? Like, right, but it doesn't mean the test, the test could be more challenging. That's right. That's right. The, um, and, but what I think, um, I mean, the, the, the funny thing about that, right, is uh, you can have two sections of the same course where one professor gives, you know, what are coded intuitively as easy questions, and the other professor gives what are coded intuitively as hard questions. But it's more or less equally hard to get an A on both tests, right? Because uh, no matter which is the test, what you have to do is distinguish your answers from the other people in the room taking the test, right? So mm -hmm. your experience of struggle is different, but because you're being graded in a different place, right? It's it's not necessarily different in the end, right? But I don't think that's what people mostly mean by this. I think what they mostly mean is something about the classroom dynamic itself, right? Apart from the grading, right? Um, uh, is it demanding? Um, does the uh, does the professor expect you to do things that you don't think you can do or that you don't think you can do yet, right? Um, uh, do, if you give an answer that's not a great answer and you know it's not a great answer, does the professor say, yeah, that's really great and, and like spoon feed a little bit and like bring you along, right? In a, or does the professor say, mm, no, no, like I, I don't think that's it, let me write, right? Um, that's a difference. Right. And the difference in real time in how much you expect the students to do and how much you expect them to work hard. Um, uh, and uh, like, I think those things are. Oh, oh, and the difficulty of the questions that you pose in real time. Right. Because you're not graded on how you answer questions in real time. Right. On a curve. Mm -hmm. or, but you have a different experience of it. Right. Um, so I do think, well, I have heard over the years that people think of me as tough. Mm -hmm. I don't mind if people think of me as tough, as long as they think of me as tough with a purpose. I was like tough, but fair. Or actually, I don't even like the but tough and fair. Um, I have always thought that students perform to expectations. Um, if I set standards higher, the students will work harder and learn more and do better and grow more and be better lawyers. And I owe them that. 
right? I owe them the opportunity to rise as high as they can through that process. And that means setting expectations high. And that means communicating in real time in the class, right? That I think you can do better than that first attempt that you made, right? And like push you to do that. Um, and I think a lot of people, I, I think I'm probably am more demanding in the classroom than a lot of other professors and than a lot of other professors and other kinds of teachers who students encountered before they came to law school. And so I think that is definitely coded as tough. What I want though, what's it's important to me to try to do, and I, I'm not the judge whether I succeed in this, only my students can judge it. I want them to know that I'm tough and I'm demanding, but I'm rooting for them to succeed, right? I want them to know I, I, I'm setting high expectations of you and I believe you can meet them, right? And my job is to enable you, like maybe with a little pain because effort is hard and thinking is hard, right? To get there. And um, I want to show the students that I'm working as hard as they are. That is say, I think if I model for the students that I am working hard on the material and I am thinking hard in real time, and what I'm asking of the students is that they do that too with me, then it's fine if they think it's tough. Um, and if they think at the end that, uh, that they've learned from that, you know, that's, that's, that's the goal. And I, and, and, um, I want them to feel at the end that they've done something hard and that they've done it successfully. How did you, learn to be a professor, especially at a young age. Um, and you had been working at a law firm before you became a professor. Is that correct? Yeah. I, 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 I clerked and then I worked at a law firm and then I, and then I came to Michigan to teach. And how did you learn to be a professor? Because, uh, was that something that you really wanted to do throughout your life? Like you wanted to teach students? Yeah. So, all right, so a few different things going on here. Let me let me let me let me try to talk about as much of it as I can. Um, when I started college, I didn't know that I wanted to be a professor, let alone a law professor. Um, I figured out in college that I wanted to be. So here's here's my plan. Right, first I'm going to talk about how I decided to be a professor, right? And then I'll come to what I think I did by way of learning how to do it, mm -hmm. right? So, so on the first part, I think I figured out in college that I wanted to be a professor of some kind. It, it happened to, like, if you had asked me for my list of, you know, three most likely desired occupations, you know, when I was finishing high school or starting college, professor would not have been on the list, right? But it was pretty clearly there by maybe midway through college because I fell in love with the project of the university when I was a student, right? Like, what do I do when I'm here? I think about hard, interesting, important things, and I try to think about them clearly and better. And I talk with other smart people who are trying to do that, and we try to figure it out, and we learn and discover and push. And I thought, that's great, like there's a life where like it can be my responsibility to do that professionally. That's great. 
And the teaching part of it, where then my job is like then to help other people do that, right, also seemed great. So I studied a lot of political theory in college. Um, and when I finished, what I didn't know was whether I wanted to be a professor of political theory with interests in constitutional law or a professor of constitutional law with interests in political theory. Right. I could imagine mm -hmm. it either way. I had taken one course as a sophomore in college um, in constitutional law. It was my first exposure to the subject. It was taught by a wonderful teacher, a, man, a, a, a Texan named H.W. Perry, um, great teacher. And I credit him with, you know, awakening me to the subject for the first time. So I knew I was interested in that, but I didn't know which side of the fence I wanted to approach it from. And what I decided my senior year was. I'll do both kinds of graduate training and see what I'm more pulled to. Like I'll go to law school. I'll do graduate work in political theory. And then I'll know. Right. And for no better reason than that, the scholarship money came through in a certain way, like which is a grad school in political theory was paid for. Um, I did that first. Um, so I went to grad school and studied political theory. And within my first term, I had made the decision. And the decision was to be a law professor. And it wasn't because I wasn't interested in the political theory I was studying. I was interested in it. It's, and, and after I made the decision, I stayed. I finished the program because I was learning a lot of great stuff. It was because I recognized that the parts of the material that I thought were the most important and interesting parts were systematically different from the parts of the material that my teachers thought <laughs> were the most interesting and important parts. Right. They want, I mean, they had a way of thinking about it. It wasn't some, some invalid way of thinking about it. It's their disciplinary way of thinking about what we're doing here. And I want to do something else. So I finished grad school and then I started law school. And that meant that on the day that I arrived at law school, I knew I wanted to be a law professor. And I hadn't studied law yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Not much. <laughs> um, and that meant that through the course of law school and any class I was sitting in, Usually I was doing two things at once. One was I'm trying to learn the material, right? Civil procedure, contracts, copyright, like whatever, like I'm trying to learn that. The other is I'm watching the teacher, mm -hmm. right? How is this teacher teaching this class? What's working? What's not? What's after a little while, I, I, I try to ask, ask myself the question, what's not obvious about the way the teacher is teaching this class? Because sometimes if you watch someone without asking that question, you understand perfectly well what they're doing, but you miss, right, some things that they might have planned or orchestrated that you don't see. Once you're awake to the fact that they might be doing that too, and you look for it, sometimes you find it. Um, and over the course of my time in law school, there were probably half a dozen teachers who I thought were really excellent teachers who I could learn things from watching. I don't model myself on, oh, and I add to the group Professor Perry, right, who taught me my sophomore year in college. Um, and I don't model myself on any one of those teachers exclusively, or maybe even primarily. Um, but I think I learned things from each of them, right, in ways that then were like, molded through the prism of me, whoever I am, to become um, uh, 
to, 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 to develop the particular teaching style that I have. And I'll, I'll add one other thing. Um, I was in a, uh, a Jewish youth movement as a kid that did lots and lots and lots of informal education um, about relatively serious subjects um, in clever ways that were not frontal classroom teaching because like because it, 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 like it's not supposed to be school, right? It's supposed to be kids. And that gave me actually a lot of techniques for talking to people, leading discussions, provoking thoughts and so forth. And I think that that's part of the training that I had that developed my teaching style also. Um, and then I just had to experiment a little bit, you know, in my first few years to figure it out. And I think that I'm mostly the same teacher now that I was a couple of years in, I think there are a couple of differences. Um, I know the material better now than I did then. And in some respects, that's a challenge to struggle against because it means there's an impulse to overcomplicate and give the students more than they can handle at the introduction. It's my responsibility, right, to push back, right, and deliver only what's a... Um, um, professional educators talk about a thing called the proximal zone of development, right? The proximal zone of development is the thing that's right in front of you now in the increment that you can process, right? Um, there are other things that you'll develop after that, right? And a good teacher knows what the student's proximal zone of development is now, today, this semester, right? And does like bring in all the later stuff. So I, I have more other stuff to screen out now. I'm probably also in some ways a little bit gentler, than I was when I started. Um, age, parenthood, um, uh, you know, other sorts of things like that. But I think I'm still probably at core mostly the same. Yeah. So when you say you are giving the students what they can handle, essentially, do you feel then that you're reading a case with the students and you're holding back a little bit on some of the nuance, some of the difficulties that you might otherwise wrestle with? 100%. Because it's not my... It wouldn't be a good... Pedi Let me put it this way. I've been a full-time professor of constitutional law for 20 years. If I haven't by now learned more about a case that I've taught 10, 12, 18 times, then I can convey to students in an hour. I'm not doing my job very well, right? I've stopped learning. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not my responsibility, right? It's, it's, it's at odds with my responsibility to try to show the students in an hour everything that I've learned about the subject over the course of 20 years, right? The classroom is not uh, a forum for my demonstrating what I know. It's a forum for my enabling the students to learn how to learn material like this. And that means figure out what in this material is most conducive to their acquiring skills, figure out what in this material is most conducive to their like developing, you know, the framework understanding of the subject that we're talking about. And then they'll have their own 20 years to fill in later. And if a student comes to me after class or in office hours or after graduation 
and says, hey, I think there's more here. Can we talk about that? I think, yeah, great. You're totally right, right? Let's do that. Um, but my job is to filter that stuff out and to give the students what's most helpful for them to learn now, right? Whenever now is in their educational process. How has teaching changed? Because when I was in law school, the internet was still very much in its infancy in the sense that I couldn't go onto Wikipedia and look up any of these cases um, in the way that you can today and find a whole bunch of information. Do you feel that students are coming to class more prepared or are they less prepared? How has it affected what you do as a teacher and what is happening to the students? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I I think the technological change has multiple effects on the learning process and the teacher-student dynamic. Um, I'm sure I won't get all of them. Um, so uh, let me start by saying this. Uh, I'm not a Luddite, but I'm a late adapter. Um, uh, and I'm a relatively low-tech teacher. I always have been. Um, uh, in the administrative process that allocates classrooms to professors each year here at Michigan, right? Um, we fill out a form, right? So like, what class are you teaching? Uh, you know, what are your audio visual or technical needs, right? Like, like, do you need the room with the fancy screens and so on and so forth? And I always say, like, I need a whiteboard, you know, and markers that work, right? That's what I want. I don't want... And it's not because I don't think that effective teaching can be done with fancier stuff. It can, right? Um, but it's not my style. And I think that my teaching works fine, in fact, well, at the more basic technical level, um, in part because what I'm trying to convey uh, most of the time is um, uh, stuff where I want to strip things away and get to cores, Right. Um, I'm a, especially in an introductory class, I'm a less is more teacher. Instead of trying to teach you a thousand things, I want to teach you 12 things that let you think about 12 other things. And what we're going to learn to do is slow down and think about those 24 things really carefully. Because if I teach you to do that, right, if I enable you to learn to do that, then you go out after this class and you learn all the other things yourself really well, right? The, the goal of the teaching is to make me unnecessary, right? Um, and I've never all wanted to keep students' attention by using the fancy things that you can do with technology. I, I feel like it's my responsibility to command the students' attention to, by persuading them that, no, like, Actually, just this material that we're looking at, like, is worth it, right? Do that. So, I, I, but students use technology you know, all the time, right? They're digital natives. And there are a ton of wonderful resources that are available on the internet for students today, right? You could probably get a reasonably good legal education uh, in, in the sense of, like, learning facts, you know, on the internet without going into the classroom. The classroom, 
I, I think should give you a lot more. It should give you skills, right? Not just facts, but there are lots of things out there. I, for me, if students find those things helpful, great, right? Um, but especially in an introductory class, my general attitude is to discourage students from using those resources as supplementary means um, because I don't think it's the best way to learn the skills that they can distinctively learn in a class like the one I'm teaching, right? The skills that you need to read Wikipedia or to watch really well-produced videos about legal cases are skills that, first of all, the students probably already have. And second, I'm probably not all that useful in teaching them how to do more, right? Um, what I want to do is uh, to teach the students to read slowly and carefully and critically. So when, when a student comes to me and says, after I've read the assignment, what else can I read? If I want to understand this better, what else can I look at? My first move is always to say, read the assignment again. Right? That's like, that's where I want your brain here. Right? Yeah. Because I want you to, that's, that's not the only skill a lawyer needs to have, but it's an important one. And I think it's undertaught, especially at earlier levels of education. Um, uh, so that's where I want the focus. The other thing that I think, or one other thing that I think the development of internet information and social media especially has done that affects the teaching relationship is um, it, ex it, it accentuates students' interest in whatever is happening this week in the larger world of government and constitutional law. Right, because there are a thousand hot takes on things, um, and I don't want their attention there. It was I want them to be informed citizens. You know, like if something is important, important is going on, they should know what important is going on, and they should think about it. But I don't want that to occupy the time and the effort that the students should be spending developing core skills and going deeply, right? And they can then use those skills to apply to whatever's happening next year that we don't know about. I, I'm a con law professor. I've never been a court watcher, right? It's not the kind of con law professor that I've wanted to be. There are court watchers among constitutional law professors, right? People whose business is, you know, the Supreme Court and what it does. And some of them are extremely good at it and really good teachers. My orientation has always been... Um, I want a broader perspective than that. I don't want it to be about what's happening right now. I want it to be about something deeper, a, a more lasting set of skills. And that requires taking your attention for a little while off of the hot thing that's happening right now, even if that thing is important. Do you feel the students are better students today or were they better students 20 years ago? And I, and I, my apologies to either the students today or 20 years ago, depending on what you say. Yeah. But, but I don't, I, I don't know if technology has changed the students in a way that makes them better or worse, or um, has political polarization affected your classroom in a way that makes the learning experience more challenging or different in some significant way. When I was in your class, 
there was certainly polarization in the sense that there were some students who were very conservative and some were a little more libertarian and and largely the class was uh, progressive or to the left, I would say. But today it seems like it's taken on a totally different nature and I wonder how that's affected both your teaching and the students generally are, are they stronger students? Are they maybe more sensitive students in ways that are either positive or negative? Mm -hmm. Um, what is, what has happened to students compared to say 20 years ago? Yeah, it's a great question and it's complex, right? And like any answer that I give is going to be given at the hazard of generalizing in ways that don't accurately describe a bunch of people. Right. Right. But I'll, but I'll, but I'll do my best. So let's, let's start with, uh, the political and polarization concerns. And then I'll try to work my way from there to the questions about, you know, like, are, are they better students? Right. Got to disaggregate that too. Right. So, um, I think, okay. I think everyone is more tense than they were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, like we've been through a lot of like crazy stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, and lots of parts of our lives are fraught um, in, in, you know, ways and in unrelenting ways that they didn't used to be. And the students today have grown up for m much of their conscious lives in that environment in the way that my generation and your generation hadn't. Right. It's not that we didn't have anxieties. Right. I mean, like I'm a child of the Cold War, you know, and um uh, and, you know, like one of the things that I thought about, you know, when I was a high school student was, well, what are the probabilities that we get through this year without a nuclear explosion? Right. Um, but uh, but it's different now in, in well-recognized ways, you know, that I'm not the leading expert in. Right. But that I, I just that I just mean to uh, uh, to wave at. And I think it's important to remember, I mean, the students who I will teach as first year students this coming fall, for the most part, are going to be students who were not old enough to vote in a presidential election until 2016. Hmm. Um, that's a very different environment to inhabit as an adult than, I mean, the first presidential election I voted in featured George Bush and the senior and Michael Dukakis, right? Both like intelligent, experienced, competent, honorable patriots, right? Um, like it's a different kind of thing, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from, from, from what these students have experienced. The system worked differently. People had very strong disagreements about things that mattered. Um, but it wasn't as tense or as polarized or as consuming, right. As it has become, that's just the case. And I think that this manifests in a couple of ways. One is, um, just like a general, uh, increase in the, feeling that things are fraught. And another is the point at which politics visibly enters the curriculum. So let's talk about my intro con law class, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, the general arc of my syllabus, and this is not the only way to teach con law, but it's not uncommon, is that most of the first half of the semester is about what constitutional lawyers generally code as structure, right? It's about, it starts with judicial review, and then it's about federalism and it's about separation of powers, checks and balances, right? Those are two things. And most of the second half of the course is about individual rights um, or rights of individuals and minority groups, equal protection, due process of law, a little First Amendment, right? Those sorts of things. When I was in law school, 
I think the general sense was people's politics show when they talk about constitutional law, but mostly in the second half of the course. In the second half of the course, we're going to talk about birth control and abortion. We're going to talk about affirmative action, right? Um, by the time you were in law school, right, we're going to talk about sexuality issues. Um, like, and people's politics are going to show, right, in those things. People's politics might show when we talk about the constitutionality of the line item veto act also, right? Um, uh, but less, it's more muted. And one of the features of structuring the curriculum that way was that you could build a group dynamic with the class through the part of the semester when people's politics showed less. And the trust that you accumulate through the first half of the semester is then an asset when people are talking about things that they feel more personally and passionately and value laid in ways in the second half of the semester. Right. Today, we're much closer to a situation where people's passions, some of which, a lot, many of which align with their partisan political identities, are visible from the word go. Right. Mm -hmm. Because all, not, not quite everything, almost everything right, is more easily codable through those lenses. Um, I try a lot of the time, especially early in the semester, to push those lenses into the background where I can, but it's harder to do than it used to be, right? Mm -hmm. That's one important difference. Um, I think it's very, oh, and I, and I think uh, one thing that's not different across that is I've always emphasize the importance to, I've always emphasized the importance of the following things to students, or at least tried to, you know, like my students will tell me if I've succeeded. What mm -hmm. is the importance of having a consistent set, a consistent set of principle to use, right? Like if you give me a reason why you interpret the constitution a particular way, when we're talking about a case on Monday, you can't give me a contradictory reason for how you're interpreting the constitution in a different case on Thursday, just because you like the morality of your result on Monday and the morality of your <laughs> result on Thursday, but, you know, like you got to do better than that. And I recognize that many people who are actually you know, like in office or confirmed by the Senate or so forth, don't always measure up, but that doesn't mean that that's not the aspiration, right? It doesn't mean that like you shouldn't, you should try to do that. Right. That's thing one. And that means that sometimes you have to push against your own normative instincts. Right. And I've, I've said that all along. Um, uh, or put differently, if as a policy matter or a matter of morality, you like the result you're reaching in every case we're talking about, you're, you're not doing it right. Right. Like you're, you're, you're not applying consistent set of principles. You are somewhere, whether you know it or not, um, uh, tinkering with the rules to produce the results you like. And you got to push back on that intuition a little. At the same time, if you're way too often, producing horrendous results, you probably haven't thought hard enough about the principles that you're using to interpret the constitution. But because the project of constitutional law is supposed to get us a basically good society, right? We have not all the same ideas about exactly what the good society would look like. Um, uh, but you have to know at the same time that your preferred idea isn't always going to be the law. And that you, that doesn't mean that you can accept any set of results or any set of ideas 
as like valid or acceptable in the space. You got to have some red lines, right, about what doesn't count as a good argument. And I think that's become more important in the last six or eight years, right, as the boundary between what's arguable and what's specious in constitutional argument among our officials has disintegrated more and more because, you know, because I mean, part of what I'm trying to do, part of what I think I'm responsible to do as a law professor is to try to give people, students, tools to help them be partners in the continued upholding of the rule of law in our society. And I, and I don't want to say that in any way that suggests that I have grandiose ideas about what I can personally accomplish, right? Like, um, I, I, uh, I, I said straight through the time of the Trump administration, where I was a very, you know, committed public person uh, you know, working against a lot of things that I thought were undermining the rule of law that administration was doing. I don't believe that I can save the Republic, but I have no doubt that like me and 40,000 other people, you know, committed to stuff like this can. And my job is to help students, you know, whatever their first order policy views about a bunch of things, try to develop the tools, right. To be among those 40,000, hundred thousand, whatever the number is people. And then on the question of whether they're, you know, better or worse, you know, they're, they're, they're different. And by that, I mean, like on average, right. Or within the first standard deviation, um, they're as well prepared as students were before. I think, um, on the upside, I have fewer students today who don't know why they're in law school than I had 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's been, in my experience, a noticeable uptick in people who come to law school uh, because they think our society is hurting and that law school will give them tools to try to help address things that need to be addressed. Right? It's an, it's an uptick in people who are cause committed. It's an uptick in people who are public service oriented. Um, and that's really noticeable. Um, and, 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 and it's all to the good. I think one change, th there's another change that I think is not as good that I think is sort of sometimes misinterpreted. I think that my students today are at least as willing to work hard as students were 15 or 20 years ago, but they more often need to be shown how to do that, right? And told what the steps are. If you show them, now that took some adjustment for me. You know, part of my style as a teacher in my first several years was we're going to do this thing. You know, we're going to like, I'm not going to hold your hand. We're going to do it. And you're going to discover that way that you can do it. And I still do that to some extent. Um, but there came a point when I realized that changes in the students' experiences and expectations meant that I would help them learn better if I became more overt and explicit sometimes about why I was doing what I was doing and like why this skill and how you do the skill, I have more pages in my readings now that are attempts to explain directly. Like, how do you compare one case to another case, right? Why do we compare one case to another case than I used to? Because if I give that to the students, they'll get it and they'll work on it. But I think they a little bit more need to be shown and need to have the transparency of that explanation 
than the students in a previous generation did. That raises the demand on me. Um, and I try to figure it out and keep up with it. Do you think that's an actual change in the students or do you think it's a change in yourself where you think you can be a better professor by teaching this way or has something actually changed in the students? In other words, there's something different about their experience growing up or the way they're being educated so that by the time they get to law school, they maybe need a little more guidance. Well, I bet it's both, you know, um, I bet it's both. I think it's, I mean, you're, I take you to be suggesting, and I think the suggestion is probably right, that some of the change is just me figuring out more over time, right, what I can do better, right? And um, and I, I hope that's the case, right? Um, because I should constantly be striving to figure out ways to teach better. And this may be one of the things that I figured out how to do better. Um, but I do think that there's also a change in the students on average, I think um, it is my, and it, it would be very hard for me to test this, but it is my perception that more of them today than earlier feel that they need to be shown more of the steps. Um, they'll do it if you show it to them. Um, but I do think, I think it's my perception that the students want more guidance yeah. than they wanted earlier. And again, this is just on average, you know, like I have sure. students today who aren't like that at all. And I had students 20 years ago who were like that, but I do feel a bit of a shift in that direction. I, I think here's something that it might in some ways, um, go with it that I think is in some ways to the students credit that they have to see it in perspective. I think the students today are in some ways better at seeing their professional lives in perspective of their lives as a whole than certainly my generation of students was maybe also yours. Um, uh, they're better at being conscious about having other things in their lives that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, that's like, which I think is really healthy. Um, and, and something I noticed about them. Should we take a call from, uh, Pedro? Sure. Why not? Let's do this. Pedro. Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening, Justin. Um, so I have, a, uh, one or two questions for the professor. Uh, it's about the, the United States constitution. Sure. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm going to try, let me, bear with me, please. I'm going to try to explain it. So, uh, it's about, uh, two amendments, the 14th, 14th amendment and the second amendment. Okay. Uh, about the 14th amendment is more like a, a question related to current events, mainly the January 6th insurrection. Uh, about the Second Amendment is more like a general question about the, its origin. It's I, I heard the curious theory that I um, later I can elaborate. But uh, let let me go first with uh, the Fourteenth Fourteenth Amendment, which says that uh, no congressman uh, that participates in an insurrection shall uh, be allowed to. 
to serve in a, in the Congress. So uh, I don't know if you know, uh, if you remember after January 6th, th there was an article in the, the New York Times that added the the article title was the the, the one 141 insurrectionists i don't know if you remember that i didn't read this article yes so so basically it had the pictures of all the the congressmen uh, made, uh, that uh, that are allegedly uh, were participants mainly like like Senator Josh Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, and obviously all the House uh, Freedom Caucus people that are currently in the news. Uh, so, so my question is not not a, like a general question about the, the amendment. It's more like a, a question about the what do you think. Uh, the, the Department of Justice is going to do, if anything, or, or even the, the January 6th Commission, because uh, it's, it was obvious to me that they, they were actually participants uh, in, the, in the insurrection. I mean, that was obvious, in real time, mm -hmm. we all saw that. So, uh, so my question is, what do you think will happen regarding to that? Uh, uh, I mean, if you want, you can maybe elaborate that on that, or, or I can go my, with my question on the second event later. Yeah, Pedro, why don't you why don't you give us your second question too, and then then we'll um, put you on mute, and then we'll have the professor respond. Yes, yes, yes thank you. Uh, regarding the Second Amendment, it's. It's a curious uh, or, uh, article that I saw. I, I, it might be totally wrong. What I, what I, what I, my understanding is. Uh, so, uh, what is actually the the origin of the Second Amendment? I know it's every citizen has the right to bear arms, but I read a curious theory that was actually about liquor and whiskey or something like that. I don't know. This is, might be totally wrong, but it was something related to to alcohol, actually. Uh, right. I, I don't know if you heard about that. So just uh, I can also uh, yeah. So that was my my statement. So. Thanks, Pedro. Okay. Well, let me see what I can do with this. Um, the anti-insurrection provisions of the Fourteenth Amendment are the kind of thing that were once upon a time regarded as like um, trivia embedded in the constitution, right? Dark corners of the document that don't do any work anymore and but that have come back into style. Um, uh, I should say, um, because I, I'm leading up to saying something very disappointing, which is I have no idea what's gonna happen. You know, I, I don't know what the Justice Department is gonna do. I don't know, um, you know, various other things about what the legal fallout from January 6th might be. But, 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 but before I say that disappointing thing, um, uh, I, I should say it's a very, very, very big deal. You know, like our Capitol building was sacked during a constitutional process, you know, at the heart of the transfer of power in our constitutional democracy. Like it's not the kind of thing that ought to happen. It's not the kind of thing that I would have believed could happen in the United States if you had asked me 10, let alone 20 years ago. It's quite alarming. Um, and a few days after it happened, 
I started the teaching of that semester's constitutional law course. And I definitely had the feeling as I was starting it, you know, and throughout, like, what does it mean to be teaching basic con law in a country, right, that has this kind of thing happening in it? Like, that's a real challenge. You know, um, it's a real challenge because you can't make the whole class be about that. Students have to learn other things. But also because you can't pretend that's not happening. Like, that is real. That is happening and needs to be addressed. Um, uh, and, 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 and I've been personally involved, not with my teaching hat on, but as a lawyer, I've been personally involved in some amount of litigation arising out of January 6th, um, uh, because I do work with the Ku Klux Klan Act, 19th century civil rights act that's provides some of the legal basis for some of the suits that have been filed against some of the people who were involved in the January 6th events, right? I think it's enormously important. That said, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't have enough information about all of the different people who are connected or are alleged to be connected with it one way or another to have opinions, even about what ought to happen with respect to all of them. But I can give you something that's even better than, you know, someone's answering this in 60 seconds on a podcast. I can tell you how to become really well informed about it. Um, for my money, maybe the best expert follower and analyst of this set of questions about insurrection in January 6th, working in America today, is a law professor at Indiana. His name is Gerard Magliaca. And if you can read anything that he writes about this, uh, he tweets about it. Sometimes he, tweet, he, he blogs about it and links to it. Anything that he writes about this is worth reading. And if you follow him, uh, you'll be way better informed about this set of issues than, than pretty much anyone else you talk to who doesn't read him. So that's, I, that's what I would say about that. Um, uh, on the Second Amendment, I would say this. There is deep and abiding controversy about the origins and the original meanings of the, 20, of the Second Amendment. I have a view about it, and it's a different view from the view that the Supreme Court has endorsed. That is to say, my understanding of the origins of the Second Amendment is chiefly that it's a federalism position, uh, that it's a federalism provision animated by the concern that um, the general government, as the federal government back then was sometimes called, might develop a standing army, uh, which could be dangerous. And that if the system wanted to avoid the development of a standing army in the general government, one of the important things to do was to maintain healthy militias in the states so that people who wanted a standing army in the center wouldn't be able to say, well, we need some fighting force, right? There'd be an answer to that. We've got them in the states. And also so that whatever standing army was developed wouldn't be powerful enough to overbear uh, militias in the states. That's, I mean, um, the Supreme Court officially doesn't fully disagree with that position. It emphasizes something very different, right, which is a more individual right to bear arms separated from the militia context account of the origins. Um, this isn't a disagreement so far that I have with the Supreme Court about law, because I believe in decisional law and doctrine, and the Supreme Court sometimes decide things that I think get original meanings wrong, and but then but then it gives us law. It's a separate jurisprudential discussion. But within the compass, uh, the pretty broad and deep compass of um, the origins of the Second Amendment, um, 
a view that is fundamentally about whiskey and liquor uh, is not one that I think has a lot of traction. Um, I mean, uh, I, I could tell a story in which it's partly about that, um, but I, I think it's a red herring. I don't think it's where I would look for a really good account um, of the origins of that provision. Yeah, those are those are good questions. But um, thanks, Pedro. So I was reviewing my law school notes last night, and and as I looked back on them, and I have all of my notes. I'm I'm a stickler for keeping things, so I've kept all of my law school notes, and I went through the I went through our con law class again, and I actually. Um, got a little bit emotional about the whole thing. It was it was really remarkable to see the things you said and how I feel they've impacted my life and the work that I do. And I think a lot of it was maybe subconscious after the fact. I it's not like I was actively recalling all of my law school notes or actively recalling everything you said in class, but. So much of it clearly stuck with me. And one of the things I noticed very clearly in my notes was that you were consistently willing to criticize decisions where you actually may have preferred that outcome for your own uh, political uh, reasons. You know, you, you don't hide the fact that you come at things from the left. Um, you certainly didn't hide that fact uh, back in the day. But it was clear to me through the notes and through the class that you were willing to take on your own side, what people would view as your own side, people on the left, that you were willing to criticize decisions that many people on the left would not be willing to criticize. And I found it, um, I found it very moving. I I have some quotes, you know, I mean some of it's paraphrased from from my notes, uh, but in one place you say you don't need to care at all what I think about issues, you should know that I generally come down on the left side of issues. And then you point out that you don't need to pick a team and line up with it every time. That sometimes the team that you think is your team is wrong about things. And one of the things you said um, was all of you have to have a theory must have something that makes it hang together. This is, it's in my notes. So it's paraphrased. You said, and you talked about this a little bit earlier. You said, make sure that sometimes only sometimes it gets you to results that you don't like. If your theory always gets the results you want, you don't have a theory, you just have a bunch of preferences. And I really took this to heart in my work as a congressman. I know that you and I don't see eye to eye on every issue. We don't see eye to eye on everything legally. But that did stick with me, this idea of having a set of principles and understanding that having a good set set of principles means that sometimes you will get outcomes you don't like. But if you always get outcomes you don't like, then you don't really have a very good set of principles either. So you need, you need a set of principles that often gets you the position you like, 
but sometimes it's going to get you something you don't like. Yeah, I, I still think that. Um, and and you thank you very much for what you said. There, there are a few things more meaningful to me as a teacher than uh, knowing that a student found something valuable in what I was saying and took it to heart. Um, uh, I... I it's very easy for me to believe this about you because, I mean, let me put it this way. Um, not every con law professor can say that he was the con law professor in the class where there was a student who became a member of Congress who stood up to Donald Trump when Donald Trump had to be stood up to, you know, for reasons of constitutional democracy. Like, I'm like, I'm very proud of that. I may have had nothing to do with forming you as, you know, someone who would take those stances, right? You might have wound up on the same path, doing the same things with or without me, but I'm proud of it anyway. Um, uh, and I, I think I think you did impact me in a very serious way in the sense that I really went to Congress with this idea that I was going to take in a set of principles and essentially my staff understood it too. Whatever the outcome of these principles, we're going to accept it. If we really believed in this set of principles, we're going to accept the outcome. And that meant when I was reading things like the Mueller report or when I'm working on a piece of legislation that might cut against groups that were on the right, like Right to Life or the NRA or whoever it might be, that I was willing to accept that. I was willing to accept the political consequences because – to me, I didn't feel right going there and basically undermining myself. I didn't want to be a person that I wasn't. And, um, and, and I think you, you had a big impact on that. I think well, that you, you made a difference there. You, one of the things you said, I'll, I'll tell you another thing you said, which, which I paraphrase again. We read all these cases and you said, hold yourselves to a higher standard of principle and integrity than most of the judges who you have read. The constitu yeah. You said the Constitution must restrain your preferences. Law involves constraints. <laughs> you, you, you must know those constraints. So, I, you know, that meant a lot to me as a student – and clearly was something that I took with me. And the reason I got emotional reading the notes last night is because I think I didn't realize the extent to which this had impacted me. Um, and I can tell you that I have staff, too, who served in my office who have been impacted by you through me because I would um, preach this to them in the office that we were willing to accept the consequences because we had to believe in constraints. We had to believe in a set of principles. Well, this, this means a lot to me, Justin, it really does. And it means a lot, you know, also because, um, it, one of the other things that I might've said at some point in that semester, it's a thing I'm fond of saying, uh, to students is, um, I mean, it's not mine originally, it's, it's Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., right? That the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing views, right? Mm -hmm. That it has to be a framework where those constraints operate, even though we will disagree with each other about a lot of first-order issues, right? 
And as you said, you and I do disagree with each other about a lot of first order issues. You know, like I like uh, uh, you are you know, famously a political libertarian. Mm-hmm. I am a political liberal. And uh, that which doesn't mean that all of your ideas line up with someone's stereotypical view of what a libertarian should think or that all of my views line up with someone's stereotypical view of what a liberal should think. But they're good first cuts. Right. Um, uh, and we actually disagree about a lot of things that matter a lot. Right. But this, but a system of constitutional democracy has got to be one where people can have important disagreements about important first order issues and work through them in a framework of mutual respect and a framework in which preserving the process fairly and giving people the opportunity to work toward persuading others of their first order views and then accepting the consequences in the cases where they can't can be maintained, right? Um, it's not, uh, uh, it's not just a test of power. It's not just a cynical exercise. Um, uh, it requires a shared commitment to that common framework. And I think that's, and that's something that's very much come under stress, I think, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in the last period of time. And, um, and here's, um, here's, I think, it comes back to something that you asked me about a difference between students then and now something that I think is different about students uh, today, certainly from when I was in law school, maybe also from when you were in law school, that's troubling and that it's not their fault, but I, that I think we have to push back against. Um, it's easier to maintain that commitment to a common framework when the disagreements that people have about first order issues are complex and multifaceted. And that is when instead of there being two teams who disagree about everything, you have 17 different perspectives, right? Each of them, uh, you know, uh, 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 persuasive to some uncertain and varying proportion of people in the game, right? Um, that lets people listen to each other across more different kinds of boundaries. It, uh, it, it permits the building of different coalitions from issue to issue, and that keeps people from thinking of each other as permanent enemies. Um, Those things are really important for the health of a system like this one. Um, The the Supreme Court of the United States has had a Republican-appointed majority for basically my entire lifetime, right? The most most recent case on my intro con law syllabus that was decided by a Democratic justice, was decided in 1976. Um, But for most of my lifetime, the center of the court was held by Republican-appointed justices from a generation where the Republican legal elite was internally ideologically diverse on a lot of the most contested issues of constitutional law. Right. Abortion and affirmative action being just two easy examples. Right. Um, this situation was became frustrating. Right. To many other Republicans who had, uh, you know, uh, uh, views on those issues that are now like more expected for you know, Republican judges more generally. But it meant that there was a space where your partisan affiliation did not fully predict your constitutional worldview. And that's really important for maintaining the health of the system and mutual respect across the boundary. And it's under, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I think it's under threat today 
is that law students today, I think, especially the kinds of law students who are ambitious in the public square, are socialized early into one team or the other. Um, there are pipelines um, and there are expectations about what you believe if you put yourself on this path to advancement or on that path to advancement in a way that does not have as much room for complexity um, as there once was. Um, uh, and this is a problem. You know, I, I know lawyers who identify as Democrats and lawyers who identify as Republicans um, who actually have, you know, complex views about lots of issues that um, uh, that differ from what one team or the other team thinks, uh, who are like wonderful people um, and really good lawyers. Uh, and the ones who are law professors, really good law professors. They're not the people, most of them aren't people who have ambitions to be judges. If they did have ambitions to be judges, they might have trouble. Um, and that's a shame, right? We would have a better system if we had a system where uh, people's partisanship pre predicted their constitutional theory less. And if we, as a result, had a stronger set of tissue that was a commitment to the shared framework. Yeah, it sounds like there's an element of audience capture here that we see in other arenas where increasingly to get ahead within this society, you have to pick one team or another. And people are developing their their own identities around those teams and saying, well, I've got to go into the right lane or I've got to go into the left lane. And there's not a lot of profit, in a sense, in taking the more independent lane. And this happens in all sorts of, uh, you know, arenas in life, but it seems like maybe it's happening in the legal community as well. I mean, I think it, I, I think it is certainly relative to, um, you know, the time when, uh, you know, justices like those in the generation just retiring came of age. Um, I would like to think that we can find ways to push it in the other direction, Um uh, I, I, it's one of those things where, again, like, I don't think that I can do it myself. It's a big country. Um, but I can try to do it in my classroom. And it is one of the goals that I have for what to accomplish in the classroom. You talked about in class, and I, I think it was on the first day of class, three American innovations. And I don't know if this is how you start the class anymore. We, we have a written constitution the people are sovereign, we have limited government, and we have divided powers. And that's how you described our system and, and what's innovative about the American system. Do you think that system is still working today? Is there a sense in which this is not working the way we maybe thought it would work out? Are, are there holes that the framers big holes the framers didn't didn't realize would exist and some of it's starting to fall apart? Or is it still possible to use this framework to maintain what we generally think of as a liberal free society? Well, I think both, I think there's just both. I think both of those things are true, right? So um, are there things that the framers didn't anticipate and ways that the system that they designed didn't work or isn't working? Of course there are. 
how could there not be? You know, I mean, um, the, 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 the framers did not have the opportunity to beta test the constitution, right? Like you, 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 you make a complex new machine. It's going to have bugs. Um, uh, I mean, they built a machine that kept a, go a government functioning peacefully in building a country for three quarters of a century before it collapsed into a bloody civil war. Right. Um, uh, three quarters of a century is not bad work for a summer, you know, um, uh, but we shouldn't pretend that we shouldn't hold them to a standard that's you know unrealistic for human achievement, right? Like, I mean, imagine what it would take to if you were asked, like, you can you can assemble the fifty smartest, most honorable, best informed Americans there are, right? Magically, you can identify them and ask them to design a system of government that will work for America really, really well in the year twenty three hundred. Like, you got to be kidding. I'm not going to, they're not going to get it all right. You know, there's so many things that they can't, right? And, and, oh, oh, and you don't get to test it, right? You have to just like, you know, take your best guess and go, right? And some things about that were recognized in the framers' own time and fixed, right? Like, for example, uh, the, the 12th Amendment to change the system of electing presidents, was a fix for something that they didn't realize was a bad idea, right? Very early on. Um, there were other things that went unfixed, right? Here's an example that nobody ever talks about. Um, as you know, the constitution originally provided that U.S. senators would be chosen by state legislatures, right? Not by popular vote. But it doesn't say how the state legislature chooses. And if you have, what do you, if you have a bicameral state legislature and one house wants Hamash for Senate and one house wants Primus for Senate, what do you do? There's no guidance at all in the Constitution about this, right? And there were states, you know, for some chunk of the early republic that wound up with holes in their representation because of it, right? It's just an oversight, right? It's not some deliberate design. Like, they were trying to do a lot of things. You don't get everything right, right? Um, uh, and it's no insult to them to, 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 to recognize this. I think that today... Now... now Part of the good news is the American people have been sufficiently creative and resilient and innovative to have found ways to correct some problems that need correcting and to have found workarounds for things that they couldn't correct directly in a way that in total delivered us you know, during most of my lifetime, let's say, a pretty functional constitutional system, you know, and I, I think the constitutional systems should be graded on a curve. Um, and, and they should be graded in light of what's possible, right? Not does it deliver utopia, you know, not does it deliver um, the best possible form of government, but given the frail and flawed material that is humanity, you know, does it give us a society with tolerable levels of justice, civil peace, prosperity, liberty, right? The basic basket of constitutional goods that we need. Um, and measured by what governments around the world have done for most of human history, the constitutional system as it existed through most of my lifetime, it, it was doing, you know, rather well, I, I, I would, I, I would say, not solely because of what the framers did, right, because of the combination of what the framers did and what later Americans did with what the framers had done, right. Um, I think that the system today is under really important strains in some ways that are traceable to the framers, and that in some ways are traceable to our failures to correct or find workarounds, but they're not primarily about 
the things that you identified as the basic innovation. So they say, we can still have a written constitution in the theory that sovereignty lies in the people and divided powers without having some of the pathologies that we have today. I think the pathologies that we, some of the most important pathologies that we have today are about things like gerrymandering, which prevents the normal process of electoral democracy from addressing the needs and the preferences of our citizens. Um, that is, the Constitution works best when it facilitates small d democratic politics, discussion, deliberation, persuasion, right, common action. Um, and that requires a system where the citizens can choose their representatives. And gerrymandering is an attempt to invert that system. Um, and given modern technology, it's enormously effective. Um, and that's a real problem. And uh, But I don't think that's actually not the written constitution's fault. That's like separate discussion. I think that's the fault of a court that has a poor idea about what it should do with that system. Now, it's very, very difficult to amend the constitution, right? So as long as we have a court that wants to dig in and keep that problem going, and that, that I think believes in good faith that it is required to do that, I just think they're making a mistake about it. Um, I, don't think, uh, I don't think they're messing it up deliberately. Um, it's very difficult to get that corrected. And until we get it corrected, I'm afraid that people are going to continue to, f th there will be a waning of faith in the normal processes of democracy, which is bad for the constitution. You know, I mean, a lot of constitutional law has been premised on the idea that most of the time we trust the electoral process to do the right thing. Not because we think that 51% of the people are always right, right? But because we think it's a better way to settle most questions than a lot of other things that we can, and because we want that to be the default measure. But that, but being able to say that with straight face requires some level of believing that our process for selecting legislators and having them work with each other is a process that's mostly functional, you know? And, um, and I think that a bunch of things about um, how elections and legislation are done in our century, uh, things having to do with gerrymandering and campaign finance and party discipline and incentives um, and, uh, and political misinformation, uh, make it harder and harder to maintain that premise. And this is a real challenge uh, appropriately with students that's different from when I was law student or when you were, Justin, yeah. which is, when my professors said to me, you know, um, this is like, the way to think about this is like, mostly we trust the political process. I would have to reckon with that idea as like a pretty reasonable idea. What do I do today when I articulate that idea, either because I'm doing it in my own voice or because we're reading some source or some case that has made an argument. And the student says to me, Professor Primus, be real. I live in 2022 and my experience as a voter is 2016 plus, And I don't see reason to have the kind of faith in that process that you think I should have, right? Like the, the mantra of the legal process school that educated so many of my teachers was that government is about reasonable people pursuing reasonable ends reasonably. What a nice world that is. And the more it's at variance from the world of the system that we have actually gives us, the more we have to think hard about what adaptations we 
need to make. I think that's the biggest challenge for constitutional law in our generation. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I run into this challenge all the time as um, someone who served in Congress. I think that our constitutional system can work. It needs corrections. We need people who are making sure that it functions properly. For example, I don't think Congress functions in any uh, proper way these days. I don't think it really functions as a discovery process uh, to discover outcomes that are reflective of the will of the people. I don't think it really does that anymore. But when I talk to people about um, making corrections, making adjustments, there are a lot of Americans who agree with me. I'd say probably most Americans agree that we can put this back together and make it work. But increasingly, I see people on the left and the right who say, just scrap the whole thing. Uh, the Constitution is worthless. We don't need it anymore. Scrap the whole thing. Start over. So my question would be, do you think that's a feasible thing? Do you think a, a rewrite of the Constitution is a real thing, like a constitutional convention? I always tell people I'll, – I'll say what I tell people. I think our Constitution is a miracle. Um, and the Constitution we have today, uh, it obviously had flaws as it was originally uh, drafted. But the Constitution we have today, with things like the 14th Amendment, is really a miracle of a Constitution compared to what we see throughout the rest of the world. And I don't think it's the kind of thing that will magically reappear again. Um, it It is, to me, a miracle. So... I think that uh, I, I think that the idea of scrapping it and starting over is a bit of a nirvana fantasy. Um, it 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 appeals, I think, to people in part because they imagine that if they could do that, people would agree with what they wanted to say. Right. And, and, uh, and they would get it right. And see, that's not what would actually happen. Right. If you could get a process that would redraft the constitution, we would reproduce a lot of the disagreements that we presently have. Um, and I think that's important to recognize. I, I do think there are some things in the constitution that are part of uh, sort of the hardwired constitution um, uh, that that are quite dangerous long term for American democracy. Um, I think the composition of the Senate is the easiest example because year by year we have more and more of a branch of government elected by a smaller and smaller group of people, um, uh, and which is a case of a a a, a deal that was cut at the Constitutional Convention, um, you know, coming back in over a very, very long term to bite a lot of people. And this is, as, as I think you know, this is a position that I've had for a very, very long time, regardless of who has a majority of the Senate. Um, uh, I think it's the kind of thing that over the long term will fuel, right, the view of reasonable people that know, like, why exactly do I think that this is a, small d democratic electoral process that I'm trusting, trusting, you know, this is a, this is a rotten borough system, right. In, 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 in increasingly. But 
I do think that we're going to have to find our way out of this, not by scrapping the Constitution and uh, uh, and starting over again, but by figuring out how to get like from where we are with the Constitution that we have, right? Which is good in some ways and flawed in some ways, right? To a somewhat better place, because I think we can have a somewhat better place under the Constitution that we have, a, a meaningfully better place, right? I also think we can get to a meaningfully worse place with the Constitution that we have, um, and uh, and that we shouldn't we shouldn't count that out, and like it would require a lot of work to avoid it and to come to the uh, and to come to the. And, 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 and to come to the better place instead. But I'm not, I'm not a junker. You know, like, I, 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 I don't think that, um, the idea of tearing up the Constitution and starting over again is a useful or mature way to think about what it is that we need. So one of the things that I often debate people about is who is an authoritative interpreter of the Constitution. And this is something that you talked about when I was in class. And I'm curious if you still hold the position today that I think you held back then, which is that each branch is an authoritative interpreter of its own um, sphere. In other words... Within its own functions, within its own role, it has to have the authority to interpret the Constitution. Do you is that your position, or or do you take a, I guess what would be like more the hard version of Marbury versus Madison, the, the the stricter version, which is there's this strict idea of judicial review, and the court itself is the authoritative interpreter, and no one else. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I. I'm not a judicial exclusivist. Um, I, I think that the idea of the judiciary as the exclusively valid interpreter of the Constitution is it's not a good idea. I, I don't think it's justified on the basis of either the the written Constitution or our traditions or a good theory of the separation of powers. Um, I think that the I, that which doesn't mean that I think that every branch is entitled to be the final judge of its own actions on every matter either, right? It means that I think that judges should um, practice deference toward other decision makers within the compass of decisions and interpretations that are reasonable ways of looking at the Constitution. Um, I in fact, you know, like to a to a to a first approximation, right? That is to say, a good constitutional decision maker or interpreter, more generally, can distinguish among three things, right? What I think the best reading of what the Constitution requires is: what is the set of reasonable things that someone might think is what the Constitution requires here, and what is off the table. Um, the boundaries of those things might shift over time, but I think a responsible official needs to have an account of those three different things, 
at any given time. And to know when what you go with is category one, right? Um, uh, and when someone else is doing category two, and it's your job to say, uh, okay, that's not what I think is the best interpretation here, but it's not crazy. It's not mendacious. And I don't get to decide everything, right? Um, there's a really, I, I sometimes tell my students that one of the noticeable shifts in the Supreme Court jurisprudence from the first to the second decade of the 21st century, um, you know, around the time you were in law school, is that the the median justice of the court switched from being Sandra Day O'Connor to Anthony Kennedy. Justice O'Connor was all about deference to the good faith of other decision makers. And Justice Kennedy never saw a decision that he wasn't the best person to make. Right? Those are very different attitudes. And like They had similar worldviews on a bunch of substantive issues that people think about the Supreme Court doing, right? Abortion, affirmative action sometimes, right? Stuff like that. But that's a very different orientation about the role of the institution. And I'm much more in O'Connor's camp on this one. And I think that the habit of mind that leads you to be in O'Connor's camp is the same habit of mind that lets you say, um, other people whose views aren't my views sometimes have reasonable views, right? And both out of respect to them and out of the intellectual humility that comes with knowing that I might not be right about everything, I have to give those people space, you know, um, to act on their view of this, which is a little different from my view of this. I think that's what constitutional democracy requires. Um, uh, I thought that then, and uh, I, I still think it now. Professor, you've had uh, a tremendous impact on my life. Um, that's why when I was in Congress, I had our class seating chart up on my wall. So I just want to thank you. And I won that at an auction, by the way, so everyone knows. I didn't steal that from the class. Um, there was a, a student auction, and, and I was able to, to win that. Um, but I put that up in my office as a reminder of what I was doing there in Congress and, and to hold to my principles. I could talk to you for another three or four hours, but I uh, I hope we can do this some some other time again in the future and and talk about more topics because there's so much to talk about. I know there are a lot of people who are going to say you had Primus on but you didn't cover this topic and I know I know we'll 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 do it some other time again hopefully. Well, I'll be happy to do it. It's nice to see you as always. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I I I hope you have lots of fun uh, doing the podcast. Oh, I'm having, for me. I'm having a blast. So thanks again for coming on. Okay. Great to All see right. you. All right. Yep. Bye.